Well, one of the things for me that makes a good movie is a good plot twist. And so if you've remembered or ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense, which has been out now for 20 some odd years, so uh, the spoiler alert is not so much a spoiler alert, but he spends the whole time with Bruce Willis, and then at the, the end you find out that what? Bruce Willis is dead, right? That famous line, I see dead people. But you watch the whole movie thinking it's one way, and then all of a sudden that line is delivered, and it's, the light bulb goes off, and your mind is blown, right? Or maybe you've seen uh, the other movie that's one written by the same director, uh, Shyamalan, or whatever his last name is, um, the, the Village. And the whole movie takes place, and you think that it's in this colonial era or Puritan era, and the, the dress and the garb and everything else would indicate that, and their houses would indicate that, and their technological uh, advancements or lack thereof would indicate that. And then there's this mysterious forest and these people that disappear, and there's apparently a beast and everything. And you're watching this whole movie thinking that it's taking place in the, the Puritan era. And then all of a sudden the plot twist is uh, the, the camera pans out at the end or, or towards the end, and you find out what? That it's modern day, and this is some cloistered cult that's in the middle of this forest uh, during normal present reality or the Truman show where he gets on the boat and he's sailing away and everybody's cheering. And then all of a sudden the boat, what hits the edge of the studio and you're thinking to yourself, Oh wow. You know, maybe the, just the, the shock of that and the, the plot twist there once at some point in the movie, you figured that out or the prestige. If you ever saw the prestige with Christian Bale and there's a plot twist in there, if you haven't seen that movie, I'll let you go watch that movie. Cause that plot twist is it's pretty great. My wife called that, by the way, before the plot twist happened, which is how I knew I chose the right woman to marry. But a plot twist, right? It, it makes an entertaining movie because it's something that we don't expect. It's something that, that just shocks us. It's something that surprises us, that catches us off guard. And as men who may have been Christians for some time now, we don't often think of the cross as a divine plot twist. But from the ground, from an earthly perspective, from a human perspective, and certainly from the perspective of Jesus' original followers, the cross was an amazing plot twist. As we've considered sin being God's response, God's, or, or sin as, as that opposition, rather, to the glory of God, and wrath as God's response to sin that we looked at last week from Romans chapter 1, and kind of unpacked, okay, why was Isaiah saying, woe is me in Isaiah chapter 6, and what was the big deal about sin, and we looked at that last week from Romans chapter 1. As we've been thinking about sin, we might expect, as we look back to the Old Testament and see the ways that God dealt with sin then, that's kind of what would make sense to us logically. Think back to, to the, the, the people's rebellion against Moses, Korah's rebellion, right? And, and God's response to Korah's rebellion, where he opens up the ground and literally swallows these people and their families and sends them to their end because of their sin. Or you think of the people when they were grumbling against Moses and God sends fiery serpents among them to begin to bite them and, and they're dying of these poisonous snake bites. Or you think of the plagues and the pestilence and the sword and the famine that God would often use with his people in the Old Testament. You think of exile with Babylon in the Old Testament. You think of Nebuchadnezzar coming in and carrying off uh, the people to, to Babylon. You think of the fiery, all of those things, right? And we think, okay, that is the expected response of a holy God to sinful man. That he would just consume them. That he would wipe them out. That he would be wrathful and vengeful. That's what we would expect. But just like that scene in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah expected that same response, and that's why he said, woe is me. Instead, what did God do? God provided atonement. And see, atonement is at the center of what we are talking about. Atonement is at the center of this series. And 
And it's that first goal, right? That, that through the story of redemptive history, through the story of atonement, God is working out his glory in mankind with every single facet of this story. Well, last week we dealt with this concept of sin. And I alluded to it, and we're going to see it develop more today, that still sin is part of God's unfolding plan for his glory to be displayed on this earth. That, that sin was not a shock to the Lord. But sin has always been part of his plan. And the cross, though we may not have expected it, though it may have been a, a plot twist, was part of God's plan from the outset, was part of God's plan from eternity past, was conceived of by God in the divine counsels of eternity past as they plotted how they were going to magnify and exalt the glory of the Godhead through creation. Romans chapter 5 is a difficult passage verses 12 through 19, which is where we're going to spend our time. It's a, a difficult text because it, it brings us face to face with a doctrine that really is not super popular in the church today. And that doctrine is the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine basically lays out and establishes that sin is not a problem for us only after we are born and actually commit an act of rebellion against God, but rather sin is a problem for us all from the moment that we are born because we are descended from Adam. And people don't like the doctrine of total depravity. They get mad at John Calvin. They get mad at Calvinists, and they, they get angry at this. But what I hope to do with you this morning, and maybe you're in that boat, is I hope to shift your anger and just at least make you angry with Paul or God and not angry with Calvin, because what we do is we find it laid out for us in the pages of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Let's read together. Paul writes, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." Again, this text is, is a difficult one, and, and really it starts right away here in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man is who? Adam, right? And you say, well, it wasn't Adam, it was Eve, right? Just, we're, we're, we're just like Adam in the garden. God, it wasn't me, it was the woman that you stuck me with. But you have to remember, and we have to remember that, that Adam was the spiritual head of that family. Adam was the spiritual head of that relationship, and Adam's failure was even prior to Eve's reaching out and taking of the, the fruit. Adam's failure was to lead his wife well to obey the commandments that God had provided. And Adam was the representative head, and that's an important concept for us as this passage unfolds. But Paul's saying, look, sin came into the world through one man. Now, again, that's created some, some problems because people are, are trying to wrestle with and wrap their minds around what does that actually mean for us? And there's two primary positions on this. The first one is this, that this is referring to corruption but not guilt. 
that original sin, the doctrine of original sin, is simply that we inherited Adam's corruption, but not his guilt. So what does that mean? Well, it means first that all humans, except Jesus, inherit that corruption. So every single person that's lived from Adam has inherited this corruption as though it were a hereditary disease that we have. It's not a guilt that we bear, but it's the corruption of sin that we have. That corruption is, again, yeah, not the guilt. It doesn't render us as guilty before the Lord. We are not uh, suffering under the, the consequences of Adam's sin. We are just suffering simply from the disease of Adam's sin. But that corruption, and this is where the inconsistency may kick in a little bit, that corruption is, is inevitably going to result in us sinning. And this is how the, the people that want to embrace this position look around the world and see so much sin and see that no one has ever lived a perfect life save Jesus Christ alone and explain that. They say, well, this is, a, this is an inevitable outcome. If you contract the disease of a sinful nature, which is every single person save Jesus, you will actually sin. But then they say, but here's the kicker. You're guilty not for the sin of Adam, but you're guilty for the sins that you commit. Okay, so that's, that's one camp. They say the sin came into the world through one man and sin spread to everyone, okay? Well, sin spreading to everyone, it doesn't mean that everybody's guilty of Adam's sin, but simply that everybody is corrupted by Adam's sin and that corruption is going to produce our own sins and what are we accountable to God for? Well, we're accountable for our own transgressions, not Adam's transgression. And I understand some of you in the room may be in that camp this morning. The second option, though, is this one, headship or corruption and guilt. Corruption and guilt. All humans accepting Jesus inherited both the corruption, both the fallen nature from Adam, but also the guilt of Adam's sin. Adam's guilt is spread through humanity as we are all ultimately descended from him. That in this sense, Adam was our physical representation because we were, in a sense, present with Adam when Adam sinned because all of us descended from the seed of Adam, right? Every single person is part of uh, the, uh, the, the descending of humanity from the single seed of, of Adam. So we were there with Adam, to use biblical terms, in his loins, so to speak, as he sinned. Thus, we are guilty of his sin by participating in that sin as well. By the way, this is one of the reasons why, again, men, we have to hold on to the historical veracity of the Genesis creation account. This is one of the reasons why we cannot say that this was Paul just using, a, or this was rather Moses just using a metaphor, that this was Moses just creating a, and spinning some wonderful tale about what creation must have been like, but really it was from the goo to the zoo to you. It was some sort of theistic evolutionary process that we have to allow for the billions and billions and millions of years, otherwise the scientists are gonna think we're dumb. Oh no, let's cower in terror of that. No, it has to be historical. Adam's building, or Paul rather, is building a doctrine of sin upon the historical existence of Adam. If we throw out Adam, you have to throw out the entirety of the Bible. That's a different sermon though. But anyways, corruption and guilt is saying, uh, again, that, that we are guilty because we were represented there. Another view that you may have heard of with this is the federal view, that Adam was our covenant representative with God that he entered into the relationship with God and that covenant in the garden was the covenant that said, look, you can eat from any tree of the garden except for one tree. You should not eat from the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. That was the covenant between God and man in the garden of Eden. Adam was our representative, humanity's head in that, humanity's leader in that. Well, Adam fell and by falling, he represented all of us in that and so now we, we are therefore now all guilty in Adam. 
And you may say, well, I don't like that. That doesn't seem fair. Well, I hope to spin that a little bit later on in our time together. But basically what we're arguing here, what I believe that Paul is arguing, is that sin has been credited now, men, to our account. Adam's guilt has been put into our account. That we are guilty from the outset. That we are guilty from the word go. Now, as I'm talking about this and developing this, just as a sidebar, let me say this. Uh, this is not, I don't want us to get hung up here by, by asking the questions, well, what about the aborted babies? What about the unborn children? What about the, the children that die young? Okay, I do think there's a special dispensation of God's grace in those situations and circumstances. So I'm not talking about what about infant salvation? Is it valid or not valid based on Romans 5? It's not what I'm here to argue. What I'm here to argue is that we men have a problem from the time that we're born. We're not guilty only when we sin. We're guilty from the, the word go. We need Jesus from the word go. We need Jesus from the moment that we're born. And he proves this point, Paul does, by saying, look, sin came into the world, and what followed sin? Death. Death came through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. You know, those in the, the world's camp, in the evolutionary camp, they want to say, well, sin is not, it's not really a moral, moral rebellion. It's, it's simply a moral imperfection. It's an evolutionary imperfection that still needs to be worked out. Okay, how's that going for you, Darwin? It's been almost 6,000 years of human history. Well, okay, Darwin, it's been millions and billions of years of your conception of human history. And how are we doing on that whole evolving past sin thing? I don't think we're doing anything. If, if anything it's, is, is evolving, it's our ability to be even more depraved than we ever were before, right? So to argue that sin is just some evolutionary mishap or hiccup is, is problematic. No, Paul's saying it's, it's indicative of the fact that we are descended from Adam. We are guilty in Adam. And Paul's going to argue for that idea of corruption and guilt in the next couple of verses. Uh, look at 13 and 14. Paul says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now, notice the, the words there. Before the law was given, there was sin. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, let's un untangle that for a minute. Sin was in the world before the law was given. Why is the law significant? Well, have you ever been out on a, a highway and you get on an on-ramp onto the highway, maybe from another one, and you're driving along, tooling along, there's not a lot of people on the road, there's not traffic out there to keep pace with, and you can't find a speed limit sign. And you're thinking to yourself, how fast am I supposed to go? And so you settle in, maybe at 75, maybe at 80, right? You just settle in there and you think, okay, I'm, I'm good, right? Well, all of a sudden you've got the blue and reds behind you and you're pulled over and the cop gets out and says, hey, the speed limit's 55, you were going 75. What are you going to say? You're going to say, I, I didn't know. There was no sign posted. Well, that's kind of what, what the argument that Paul is making here is. He's saying, look, sin was in the world and look, hey, guess what else was in the world? Death. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Why does he name Moses? What came through Moses? The law, right, on Sinai. And yet, Paul's saying, look, people were dying from Adam to Moses, even when there was no codified law from God. Even though there was, there was no revealed law from God, wherein people could say, you are sinning. God says, thou shalt not, and thou shalt are. So stop it, because you're, what you're doing is sinful. You're guilty, and you're accountable to a codified law. Paul's saying, look, death was reigning. In fact, look at the flood, right? The flood is prior to the law. 
And so the question then has to be, wait a minute, God, if there's no law, just like you might protest to that police officer who pulls you over, if there's no law for us to know that what we're doing is wrong, why is death still here? Why am I still guilty? Why am I still dying? Well, Paul's argument is because your guilt goes back not to an act that you commit, not to a transgression that you commit, but it goes back to Adam. See, when Adam sinned, sin enters the world, death follows sin, death spreads to all of us. See, this is the doctrine of total depravity. This is the doctrine that every single human being, save Jesus, is born in need of Jesus. This may seem like an odd place for us to be right now, an odd place for us to start with this whole focus on the glory of God, but it's going to make sense by the end. And if it doesn't, then I've failed you miserably. But men, what I want us to see is we are all guilty because the relationship all of us have with Adam. We're all born without a shot at being good enough in the eyes of God. And if that makes you feel hopeless this morning, good. Because I think that's what Paul wants you to feel when we read a a passage like this. It's meant to bring us face to face with our desperation. And that's our first point this morning. It's this, acknowledge how desperate we are without Christ. Acknowledge how desperate we are without Christ. See, the Bible has this amazing way of cutting our legs out from under us, and it, it starts right away. Hey, look, you're born not with a chance at being holy. You're not born neutral. No, you're, you're born guilty. And the rest of your life just confirms that guilt. There's a movie, and I won't tell you which one it is, because uh, it's one that I watched in my youthfulness, and uh, I haven't watched in a long time. But there's a scene in the movie where the, a guy's talking to this girl, and he, he, he has a crush on this girl, and he says, so what are the chances of a guy like me and a girl like you ending up together? You know what movie I'm talking about. And she goes, well, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, not good. And he says, not good as in like one in a hundred? And she says, no, more like one in a million. And the guy looks at her and smiles and he goes, so you're telling me there's a chance, right? Man, there, there is no chance with us when we're born, right? As foolish it is, as it is in that scene for him to think he has a chance with this woman who we find out later in the movie is married, our chances with God are, are make that look like he's going to win the lottery every day of his life for the rest of his life. Our chances with God are, are nothing. We have no shot with God by ourselves of our own. I mean, think about your kids, or if you don't have kids, think about your, your nephews, your nieces, or your friends' kids. You know, those ones that they come over, or those ones that you have in your house, and you just want to look at them and go, Really? Did you teach them to sin? Did you teach them to fight? Did you teach them to hit each other? Did you teach them to steal toys from one another? Did you teach them to whine? Did you teach them to be ungrateful? Did you teach them to yell and scream? Did you teach them to be disobedient to you? I would venture a guess the answer to those questions, every single one of them is no. It came what? Naturally. Why does that come naturally to every single child? Because of the doctrine of total depravity. Because we are born not just with the corruption of Adam, but also with the guilt. Paul describes our guilt and our condition this way in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Better off than who? Better off than the Gentiles? No. 
Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. By the way, men, sidebar, a seeker-sensitive church is full of believers seeking the lost. There are no seekers seeking God. That's what Paul says here. The lost are drawn by God. They are called by God. They are brought in by God. They don't come to God and say, okay, God, I'm ready for you. No one seeks God. All have turned aside and together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is humanity, y'all. This is, that's, Paul is describing everyone prior to Christ in this. No one does good. But Paul's not by himself in this. We can go even back to the Old Testament. How about Isaiah 53 in that great text where he's talking about the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Well, why did Christ have to die on the cross for our sins? Because of verses like this. All we, like sheep, have what? Gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. And what has that resulted in? Well, it's resulted in the Lord needing to lay on him the iniquities of us all. See, even in Isaiah 53, we find total depravity. Or there's also Jeremiah 17, 9. And this is a verse I'm sure that we've brought up with our kids. The heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, these are, are the principles of Scripture that are confirming to us what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5, and that is that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and all of us now who descend from Adam inherit both his corruption and his guilt. Without Christ, men, we are in a desperate and dire situation. We are hopeless. In fact, our con condition is, is far worse than we often think it is. I know of many who have recommended and, and said in sermons and also said just in, in personal conversations that I've had with them that if somebody comes up to, to criticize you, your response needs to be, man, you don't even know the half of it. I'm far worse than you even know that I am. And that's true, man. And that's something that, that is just our reality. We, we need to be brought face to face with our depravity and understand it. It's not fun. I'm not suggesting that it is, but we need to be brought face to face with our depravity. But here's the other thing that we need to consider is the depravity of our loved ones. This should produce within us an evangelistic zeal to see those in our lives who don't know Christ come to faith in Christ because of their desperate circumstances and their desperate situation. A friend of mine posted yesterday on Facebook and he said, here's some reasons why we don't evangelize and two of them jumped out to me. One of them that he said is we aren't persuaded of the sinfulness of people. We are persuaded of the sinfulness of people. You think of, of your nana. You think of your mom. You think of your daughter. You think of your sister. You think of your brother. And you think about how kind and good they are and how sweet they are. And you think to yourselves, well, yeah, they don't have the Lord, but they're a good, they're a good person. And even though in the context of church, as you sit around this table, you would say, well, absolutely, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and no one who would say I'm a good person is going to get into heaven. You believe that doctrinally, but functionally, you operate with your loved ones as though they're going to get into heaven because they're a nice person. They're not. They're totally depraved and desperately in need of Christ. 
One reason we're not persuaded of the sinfulness of people. The second reason is we doubt the wrath and judgment of God. We doubt what we looked at last week, that the wrath of God is being poured out from heaven against your sister, your mom, your daughter, your son, your spouse. We doubt those things. We doubt Romans 2.5, that they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of heaven. Because, men, if, if we embrace that and we believe that, and maybe some of you in this room do and you are, but if we believe that, then we would be, with every breath that we have, pleading with them, imploring them, 2 Corinthians 5.20, to be reconciled to God through Christ. We'd be doing everything that we could to convince them of their need, their desperation. Your, your children, men, your wives, wife, singular, Wives, corporately. Your, your mail carrier, your barista, your cashier, every single one of them, if they're not in Christ, they are in a desperately, desperately dire situation because they too have inherited the corruption and the guilt of Adam. The key to our wrapping our minds around this is understanding what we talked about last week, which is again that sin is an attack on the glory of God and God is going to be glorified. And he's going to be glorified either through judgment on the lost for all of eternity or judgment on Christ at the cross. Paul continues in Romans 5.15. He says, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. As desperate as we are without Christ, the good news is that God in his sovereign plan to bring himself glory was not thwarted by our sin. God in his sovereign plan provided an opportunity for us who were guilty because of our union with Adam to now be declared righteous and innocent because of our union with someone else, the second Adam. And the second Adam is who? Jesus. And Paul frames this by use of a contrast. And he starts out, but, but the free gift. And that's such a good contrast. That's such a a welcoming word after we've read verse 14 and, and all of us are sitting there going, man, death spread to all men because all men sinned. I'm guilty. I'm desperately sick. I'm totally depraved. I have the corruption, the guilt of Adam. Woe is me from Isaiah 6. And then we get to verse 15, but the free gift. And we understand here comes the plot twist of God's glory being re realized through his grace. But the free gift, well, let's contrast the free gift. Well, if the, the sin of Adam, right, brought what? Death. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's sin, right? That's, that's on the one side. If many died through the one man's trespass, much more of the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many, resulting in what? Well, look at verse 18, resulting in, therefore, life, right? Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for, for all men. So union with Adam brings death. Union with Christ brings life. The second contrast is the results of their actions, right? Well, the results of the, the act of Adam brought what? Condemnation. 
The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought what? Justification. So you've got the results there. Union with Adam brings condemnation through Adam's actions. Union with, with Christ through his actions on our behalf brings what? Justification. Brings righteousness. Brings life. So that Paul can write in 5.17, For if because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is good news, yes? This is good news that, that, that the Bible doesn't stop at Romans 5.14. This is good news that, that the Bible didn't end at Romans, or at, at rather Genesis 3.6 where Adam and Eve sin and fall. It's good news that the Bible doesn't go from 3.6 to Revelation 19. It's good news that the Bible doesn't go from Romans 5.14 to Revelation 19. You know why? What, what happens in Revelation 19? We're going to get there in this series. But this is the anti-Hobby Lobby Jesus that shows up in Revelation 19. This is Jesus wearing a robe dipped in blood. This is Jesus with eyes that are aflame with fire. This is Jesus with with a sword coming out from his mouth. This is Jesus riding on a, a white war steed. This is Jesus with a name tattooed on his thigh that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus leading the army of the host of heaven to come and vanquish every single one of his foes. Now let me ask a, a question, men. If the Bible had gone from Genesis 3.6 to Revelation 19 or Romans 5.14 to Revelation 19, would God still be just and glorious and holy and righteous and good? Yes. Yes. If God had simply vanquished his creation from the face of the planet, poured out his wrath upon every single one of us, opened the ground like he did with Korah and swallowed us all, and not a single soul was saved. God would have been just as glorious, as holy, as good, as just, as he is with what he chose to do instead. We were not owed the cross. We were not owed his grace. He is not good because of the cross. He is good because he's God. He's not loving because of the cross. He's loving because he's God. He's the definition of good. He's the definition of love. The only reason we know good and we know love is because we know him. This free gift that he's given us is, is simply and fully a result of his grace and his kindness to us. That he didn't leave us in our plight of being guilty in Adam and just simply demolish and, and obliterate every single one of us. He would have been perfectly just and holy and righteous and glorious to do that. Just like with Isaiah standing before Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6, Jesus didn't have to send the angel to atone for Isaiah with the hot coal. Instead, he could have just consumed Isaiah on the spot, end of story, and nobody could have charged him with any wrong. It is only God's grace, men, that has provided for us what we have today, which is salvation and deliverance and righteousness and life and not condemnation and judgment and death. 
Second point this morning is that we should thank him for that. Thank God for his glorious grace. Now, I don't use the word glorious there as the Christianese kind of tack on phrase that we always use. Oh, well, that not that so glorious? No, I mean gloryful grace. That his grace is still an outpouring of his glory. That in seeing his grace, we need to understand that his grace is a magnification of his glory. That it is a, a display of his glory. Because once again, men, God has never been indebted to his creation for a single moment in created history. God did not owe us the cross. We needed the cross. The cross was necessary from our point of view, but not necessary from God's point of view. His wrath didn't need to be poured out on his son. His wrath could have simply been poured out on us and he would have been holy, just, good, loving, kind, glorious. But instead he provided the cross. And that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel that, that we need to be reminded of daily. The good news of the gospel that our lost loved ones need to hear daily. This is what your wife needs to hear, men. This is what your kids need to hear, men. This is what your, your parents need to hear. This is what your, your, your neighbors need to hear. Your boss needs to hear. Your coworkers need to hear. Your cousins need to hear. They need to hear this. They need to hear, yes, that first point that, look, you are in a desperate situation without Christ, but then they need to hear. But the good news is, is that God has provided Jesus for you. That God's wrath is going to be satisfied against sin. We know that to be true. There's not one sin that won't go unpunished. Not a single one. From Adam through the whoever the last person on this earth is going to be. Every single sin, every single sinful thought, every single act of rebellion, every single lustful thought, every single sin is going to be punished under the full wrath of God. The question is this, is it going to be punished in all of eternity or is it going to be punished as God stuck Jesus between him and you and used Jesus as a shield for you and poured all of his wrath against your sin out on Christ and that shield was the cross. See, that's the glorious grace of God. And honestly, men, for God to be God and to be who he is and to, to continue to be who he is, the, the cross was not necessary for him to remain who he is. It was necessary for us to have a relationship with him. It was necessary for us, not for him. So a couple of questions. Number one, as you consider this grace, are you thankful for it? Do you thank God for his glorious grace? And maybe you're out there thinking to yourself, oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure I've done that at some point in time in my life. Let me phrase this question a different way. If God wasn't omniscient, would he know that you're thankful for his grace? In other words, have you expressed that to him? And you say, well, yeah, I've done that once or twice. Are, are you good with that, really? Once or twice. Those of you with, with a mortgage, if somebody came in and paid off your mortgage, how many times would you thank them for that? I would imagine every single month when you're not writing a check to the bank, you would be prompted to remember what they did for you and maybe send them a text and say, hey, man, again, thank you so much for what you did. Guys, God saved us from an eternity in hell. This should be a daily part of our prayers, thanking him for his grace. And then the second 
question just on this point is this. Does his glorious grace motivate you, drive you, move you to go and tell others about it? Because as we saw in point one, every single person on this earth currently needs this grace. It's their only hope. And if you knew of some guy that was writing checks to pay off mortgages and he said, hey, go tell your friends. Go tell your friends. I've got unlimited resources. Go tell your friends. Have them come here. I'll write them a check to their bank and their house can be paid off today. You'd be going and you'd be picking up the phone. You'd be calling your parents. You'd be talking to your neighbors, those ones that you feel uncomfortable broaching the subject of Jesus with. And you'd be like, hey, you need to go talk to this guy because he's paying off mortgages. Look, he did it in my life. Look, here's my bank account. See, it says, see where my, my deed is right here and it says paid in full. You need to go talk to him. Man, why aren't we doing that with people and Jesus? Because what Jesus paid is way bigger than anybody's mortgage, especially even the mortgages in South Orange County. And he's sitting there going, I've got unlimited resources of grace and forgiveness and righteousness. Have them come to me. I need to be thankful, grateful for the glorious grace of God. And, and now we're moving into what we're driving at here. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Men, in the scriptures, there's an unapologetic exclusivity about the cross and the atonement. John 14, 6, 5 and 6. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered and said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, not one person comes to the Father except through me. Peter echoes this in, in Acts chapter 4 as he's preaching to the, the religious leaders. And he says, look, this Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the, the cornerstone, and there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name, none, not one. Salvation in no one else. All roads do not lead to heaven and the Bible does not apologize for that. Good people don't go to heaven and the Bible does not apologize for that. The cross is the only hope for salvation and the Bible does not apologize for that ever simply doubles down on it over and over and over again. And then here's what I think we're beginning to understand what, what Paul is driving at here. The cross was never God's plan B, but always God's plan A. The atonement was never God's plan B, but always God's plan A. Acts 2.23 Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the, what? Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let me ask you a question. Who's responsible for crucifying Jesus? Is it the Jews? Is it the Romans? Or is it God? The answer is yes. All of them. Man, the atonement, the cross, was in view in eternity past. 
The, the, the cross was in view in the divine council of the Trinity in eternity past. It, it was not in view only after Genesis 3, 6, which is what open theism would have us understand, that, that God is just learning about things daily as you and I are going, oh no, is, is Trump going to relapse and have more COVID or is he going to be okay? What's, what's going on? I, why did PJ just do that? I can't believe he just did that. No, God knows the beginning from the end. He's the alpha and the omega. The cross was in view before he even said, let there be light. Which also means, men, and this is where it becomes difficult for us to wrap our minds around here, but that also means that sin was in view from eternity past in the divine counsel of God. That God created a world where sin would occur and he did so with intentionality. And according to Colossians 1.16 that we looked at the first time together, God does everything for what? For his glory. So he created a world in which sin would exist with intentionality, ultimately for his glory. And we say, well, how... How does that work? And we're beginning to understand this because what sin does is sin causes us and drives us to what? It drives us to the, the cross. It drives us to Jesus. It drives us to the atonement. In fact, that's the only place that sin allows us to go and find any hope in this life. Man, the, the atonement was not concocted in the war room of the Trinity after the attack of sin. No, the atonement was conceived of by the divine Godhead in the eternal boardroom as they were planning redemptive history. Final point is recognize the glory and the exclusivity of the atonement. Recognize the glory and the exclusivity of the atonement. Paul's been laying out his argument here in Romans chapter five, saying, look, you're all guilty in Adam. And so many people want to protest that and say, that's not fair, God. That's not fair that because of one man's actions that I'm now guilty before you. But I don't hear as many people protesting when we say, hey, you know what? But because of one man's actions, you can be righteous now in the eyes of God. We want union with the second Adam, just not union with the first Adam. But the thing is, union with the first Adam necessitates union with the second Adam. We need Jesus. And see, man, that's what we're driving at here. We need Christ. And he is the only one that God provided for our need. For our desperate situation. He didn't provide another way. Simply Christ. Let's do some question and answer here. That question right there. How many paths to righteousness and justification did God create? Did God design? One. How many saviors did God provide? One. And then think about it this way. Have you ever thought about like the player coach that wants to put himself in as the starter of the biggest game in, in his team's history, right? He wants the ball. He wants to be on the mound. He wants the spotlight. Who did God send to be the savior? An angel or a man? Or did he himself take that role? He took that role. And if we hope to overcome our guilt in Adam, who is it to, that, that we must turn to in, in faith and repentance? Jesus, right? Let me rephrase that last question. If we hope to overcome our guilt in Adam, who is the only person we can turn to? Jesus. See, man, God designed the atonement as the sole hope for man to be pardoned from his sin. Sin leaves us desperate. Sin undoes us. Sin brings us to the end of ourselves, wherein we have to come face to face with the reality that we can't remedy sin. 
that we are Isaiah standing in the presence of Jesus going, woe is me, I am damned by myself. And we, by God's grace, are brought to the position of saying, look, I need Jesus. There's language in this text that may trip us up when it talks about that, that God provided for justification and life for all men, right? And we look at that and we say, what, are, is Paul a universalist all of a sudden? No, he's not a universalist. What he's arguing there is, look, Jesus is the only hope for all men, for every man. Adam's guilt was attributed to everyone. If you want righteousness, the only one you can turn to is the second Adam. The only one that you can turn to is Jesus, that he is the, the one provided for everyone in human history. Do you see the glory of the cross here? Do you see the glory in salvation? Do you see that, that this is why 1 Corinthians 1 says that, look, you can't trust your own wisdom, that God has designed the cross to be foolishness so that no one in their own wisdom may boast? See, salvation is us, as, as you may have heard in the baptismal tanks this past weekend, time and time and time again in these testimonies, realizing and saying, look, it's about surrender, 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 surrender. Salvation is us laying ourselves down before the Lord saying, I've got nothing and I need Jesus. If I don't have Jesus, I'm damned and I'm lost. Do you see how every time somebody bows the knee to Christ here on earth in faith and repentance, Jesus is exalted. His act is exalted. He is glorified. He is held high. He is magnified. And we are left humbled before him. Man, this is how the cross is a magnification of the glory of God. Because it leaves us nowhere else to turn but to Jesus. This is why Jesus in John 17 prayed before going to the cross. Father, now is the hour. Glorify me with the glory that I had before The gospel, man, it, it robs us of any merit that we have, of any right that we have. In an eternity past, God designed a world where sin would exist. Yes, he did. And he condemned the whole world under sin based on Adam's guilt and Adam's act. Yes, he did. And every single human being is born needing atonement, needing forgiveness. Yes, he did. And he remedied that through providing Jesus so that everyone would say, my only hope, God, is you. My only hope is Jesus. I need Christ. See, if there were another way to deal with our sin, it would completely undercut the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross is bound up in total depravity. It's bound up in the reality that every single one of us needs Jesus. Every single one of us needs Christ. And we're going to look at that more next week as we've find that the actual reality of the cross in Philippians chapter 2. But again, the cross was a, a plot twist that we may not have expected God to, to do. We look at the cross and we say, this, this from an, a, a, a ground level doesn't make a whole lot of sense, God. But when we understand arguments like Paul's making here in Romans chapter 5, we, we have to see that, look, we're all desperate without the cross. And God provided the cross for us to exalt Christ. And men, our, our goal right now with those around us before we die, before we go to be with the Lord, is to see as many people as possible bow the knee to Christ and the cross on this side of eternity and not when it's too late. Because they're going to be punished, they're going to be judged, they're going to be condemned, they're going to be judged, they're going to be 
suffering an eternity in, in hell, and God's going to be glorified through them. But right now, they have the opportunity to have Christ placed in front of them, between them and the wrath of God, and they can take shield and refuge behind the cross. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. Words that seem not enough, but we are thankful for the cross. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful that you saw fit to to use the cross to give us and show us and display your glory. What an amazing gift that is. Father, may we respond well to that, living lives of gratitude and thanksgiving to you, telling as many people as we possibly can where they can find the same forgiveness because every single person in this world needs it, God. We praise you. We give you the glory for this. Pray that you'd give us just a great time in small groups and that we'd be faithful the rest of this day to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.